We are going to turn now to our passage of scripture that we read earlier, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 9. And whilst I want to make comment on, on bits and pieces that are said there, I really want to zone in on verse 9, where Paul, writing to the Corinthians, encouraging them in this, this process of giving, reminds them in these words, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Let us pray. Father, we remember the prayer of your son, that great high priestly prayer in John 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And we have here your truth in our hands before us. We thank you that it is absolutely perfect in every detail. We do not need to add, we do not need to subtract. And we certainly ought not to question in a negative way what you have said and what has been written. It has been said and given and written for us and for our salvation, for our edification, for our building up in the faith. May these things then be our gifts as we are built up in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, Paul wrote twice to the Corinthians. We have both of his letters in the Bible. The first letter is one of rebuke and correction to sort them out. I'm not sure Corinth was the kind of place you would really want to be the pastor. There was an awful lot of problems, and despite having had the Apostle Paul to found and to teach, they seem to have gone a bit awry very quickly. The second letter deals with that new and more dangerous threat, that of false teachers infiltrating the church taking away, taking them away from the truth of the gospel and attacking Paul himself. And so in the second letter, he defends his apostleship and gives instructions for the collection for the poor believers in Jerusalem. Here in chapters 8 and 9, Paul discusses the offering that he was collecting for the poor saints in Jerusalem. To stimulate the Corinthians' giving, he first points out the example of the Macedonians. And we have that in chapter 8 and verses 1 to 8, who gave generously and sacrificially despite their deep poverty. Look what he says. For they gave according to their means, in verse 3, chapter 8, verse 3, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. Well, because you've all got masks on this morning, I can't tell who anybody is here this morning, but I'm quite sure most church treasurers would be absolutely delighted with a congregation like the Macedonians who were just begging to give. We want to give. We want to support. We want to be generous. But as he thought more and more about the reality that true love manifests itself in sacrificial giving, his mind was irresistibly drawn to the greatest example that the world has ever known, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in verse 9, we read those well-known words, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to go on to explain to them how they know that in the words that follow. You see, the Corinthians may not already have heard of the Macedonians. Well, they've heard of them now, but up until that point, perhaps they had no idea about these other believers. 
but they certainly knew all about the Lord Jesus, for Paul himself had taught them. Paul refers here to Christ using the full name of the incarnate God, the Lord Jesus Christ. That rich title encompasses the fullness of who he is and what he has done. Lord is the name above every name that was given to him by the Father. We read of that, don't we, in Philippians 2, and gave him the name that is above every name. After the completion of salvation, the name that is above every name, and that every knee should bow before him. Jesus depicts him as the saviour of his people. We read that in Matthew. The angel appears to Joseph and says, you'll give him the name Jesus. Why? Because God couldn't think of a better name that day? No, because it was full of meaning. Jesus, because he would be Jehovah, the saviour of his people. Christ describes him as the anointed Messiah and King. Friends, Jesus Christ is always the preeminent example for the believer to follow, whether in service, suffering, or sacrifice. And so in the time that we have available to us this morning, I want to turn back to that text and to verse 9. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us to look at this again, not necessarily in the terms of a particular appeal that we're making for money this morning, although these words should encourage us to generosity in every area of our lives, time, talent, and treasure. But because in this Advent season, we have been looking forward to, we have been preparing to celebrate again the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for us and for our salvation. I want us to look at these words carefully. And my prayer is that the Lord will not only inform us but will bless us and will challenge us. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, so that you by his poverty, might become rich. This is one of these wonderful texts for ministers and for preachers. It just beautifully breaks down into three parts. And I want us to look at each of them in turn. Christ's riches, he was rich. His poverty, for us he became poor, and our enrichment, because it was for us that he came. So first of all, his riches. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich. Friends, if you wish to understand what happened at Bethlehem, then you must go back to Bethlehem. If you wish to measure the depth to which Christ descended, then you must bear in mind the height from which he came. And if we wish to enter into the meaning of the birth of Jesus, we should turn to the Gospel of John, a book which does not describe the details of his birth at all, but describes instead who he was and where he came from. Let us listen to John's great opening words. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. In the beginning was the word. Now this is John's title for Jesus. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then in verse 14, these 
most wonderful words of all that are almost beyond our comprehension. And the word, Jesus Christ, the eternal son, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What we see when we come to the stable in Bethlehem is not then merely the birth of a little child. It is the entrance into the world of the very Son of God. You know, friends, as though God, Jesus, owns everything in, in heaven and on earth, his riches do not consist primarily of what is material. Paul's not writing here about, uh, about the seas and the hills and the oceans and the, and, and the cattle on the hills. The words he was rich indicate an unlimited pre-existence. Paul's letter to the Philippians contains a good explanation of the phrase, he was rich. For there he states that Jesus was in his pre-existence in the form of God. That's the ESV or as the NIV says, in very nature, God. And that he possessed equality with God. Again, he says that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't have to grasp at it because equality was already his. He was eternally the son of God. In other words, Jesus was in his essential being all that God was. And so in this way, Jesus was rich, eternally so. Those of us who preach well, I certainly am very grateful for those who are far more gifted in study and languages uh, than I am and uh, help us with commentaries and books uh, in our study. And the eminent 19th century theologian Charles Hodge wrote these words. And let's listen carefully to them, please, if you will. He says this about Jesus. He says, all divine names and titles are applied to him. He is called God, the mighty God, the great God. God over all, Jehovah, Lord, the Lord of lords and King of kings. All divine attributes are ascribed to him. He is declared to be omnipresent, omniscient, almighty, immutable, the same yesterday, today and forever. He is set forth as the creator and upholder of the universe. All things we are told were created by him and for him and by him all things consist. He is the object of worship to all intelligent creatures, even the highest, all the angels, are commanded to prostrate themselves before him. He is the object of all religious sentiments, of reverence, love, faith and devotion. For to him men and angels are responsible for their character and conduct. He required that men should honour him as they honoured the Father, that they should exercise the same faith in him that they do in God. Indeed, he declares that he and the Father are one, that those who have seen him have seen the Father. He calls all men unto himself, promises to forgive their sins, to send them the Holy Spirit, to give them rest and peace, to raise them up at the last day, and to give them eternal life. He continues, God is not more and cannot promise more or do more than Christ is said to be to promise and to do. He has therefore been the Christian's God from the beginning in all ages and 
all places. I don't know if you've sung this particular hymn, but one of the carols, which is very well loved, says, Lo, within a manger lies he who made the earth and skies, he who throned in height sublime sat amid the cherubim. Sacred infant, all divine, what a tender love was thine. Thus to come from highest bliss down to such a world as this. And then the chorus, hail thou ever blessed morn. Hail redemption's happy dawn. Sing through all Jerusalem. Christ is born in Bethlehem. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he was rich. It's going to take me, I think, all eternity in the Lord's presence to fully understand that statement, he was rich. I, I have written and I have rewritten and I have rewritten those pages time after time after time, trying to get to the depths of this. He who was eternal God, God the Son, in all the glory that there is in the Godhead, he was rich beyond all measure. But the text goes on, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Friends, although Jesus possessed all the riches of God from all eternity, yet for the believer's sake we are told he became poor. Now some have in the past understood this statement to be a reference to Christ's financial poverty at his birth and throughout his life. He was born in a manger. There was no room in, in the inn. He said himself he had nowhere to lay his head. But this verse is not a commentary on Jesus's economic status or the material circumstances of his life. The tense of the verb used here indicates that it is his incarnation, his birth at Bethlehem, that is meant, rather than the conditions under which that life was lived. And that is what is uttermost in the apostle's mind. For you see, friends, the Lord Jesus became poor in the act of becoming man. Now, if you and I are poor, it usually means we've lost something, doesn't it? If you've got investments in the stock market and the stock market goes down and you go and read your paper, wherever it is, and you realise you've lost a couple of thousand pounds, you're not going to be particularly happy, are you? Our hearts sink until they go back up again. For Jesus, he became poor, not by subtraction, but by addition, by taking on our flesh. It was not so much in the lowly circumstances of the human birth as in the fact that he should have been born at all, that the greatness of his condescension lay. In his book, The Death of Christ, James Denny writes this, he says, the New Testament knows nothing of an incarnation which can be defined apart from its relation to the atonement. He continues, not Bethlehem, but Calvary is the focus of revelation. And J.I. Packer adds, the crucial significance of the cradle at Bethlehem lies in its place in the sequence of steps that led the Son of God to the cross of Calvary. And this, of course, was his ultimate experience of poverty. Paul, in 
2 Corinthians 5, has just reminded them of that great truth. In verse 21, he writes this, For our sake, he, that is God, made him Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And do you remember that on that cross, when he cried out those words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that one eternal moment, as he bore the wrath on our sins, made to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, hell is eternal poverty. And on the cross, Jesus Christ became the poorest of the poor. Oh yes, we love the traditions. We love the carols. We love the trees. We love meeting up with family and friends if we're able to do so in this day in which we live. And thankfully we are. But here's what it's really all about. He who was rich, who for all eternity had been in the splendor of glory, one with the Father, unending fellowship, became poor. And he became poor for you. And he became poor for me. For on that cross he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that in him, in Christ, believing in Christ, having faith in Christ, they are words that you and I will never ever need to utter. And so as Paul writes to these Corinthians, yes, the immediate context is an offering for the saints. He says, you know the Lord, the, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know the unmerited love and favour of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know this, they might say to Paul. He says, you, you know it because though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Which leads us to the final point that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That you, through his poverty, might become rich. That leads us to the third and final point, our enrichment. Why did he do it? As I said, that we might become rich. Now, this, of course, suggests that we were poor before we met Jesus Christ, and we were totally, spiritually bankrupt without hope and without God. The purpose of his willing submission to poverty was that believers who accept in faith the sacrifice made by him on the cross for their sakes at such tremendous cost should one day share the very glory which he laid aside precisely in order that he might die the death by which he alone could redeem them. We almost want to shout hallelujah at that point, don't we? Well, I do. I don't know about the rest of you. But that just shows you something in my background, really, doesn't it? I'm sure if you don't want to shout it in your heart, you're rejoicing over that. Though he was rich, he didn't need to come. He came voluntarily because in the councils of eternity past, when the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were together, they, they purposed a plan to save a people 
And that plan was costly. You know, we often say, don't we, sometimes that salvation costs you nothing. You can't contribute anything. You can't do anything. But it didn't cost the father nothing. And it didn't cost the son nothing. It was costly indeed. That though he was rich, yet he came to be poor on that cross. That you and I might become rich. Many years ago, I came across this story, and I just want to repeat it to you. It's the story of a wealthy man who had died. He'd been very successful in business. He had a beautiful home, lots of paintings, lots of artifacts, lots of money, lots of beautiful furniture. Tragically, his wife and son had died many years before him. And after his funeral service, there was to be held an auction of all of his goods, all these paintings, all the furniture, all the, rare all the rare books, everything that money could buy, he had enjoyed. But as the people gathered, they, they, they'd produced the, the booklet and everybody was keen, everybody knew what they wanted. And as they were gathered in the auction room that day, it was absolutely packed. And there was on an easel there what looked like a painting and it was covered uh, by a sheet. And as the auctioneer began, he said, our first item is over here on the right-hand side. And so the, the sheet was removed and there was this rather unimpressive picture of his son. Who will bid me, says the auctioneer. Absolute silence in the room. A hundred dollars? Nobody. Fifty dollars? Nobody. The people began to get frustrated. They had seen all the beautiful things in the catalogue. They were waiting for them. Let's get on to the good stuff, somebody shouted. The auctioneer says, no, this is the first item and it needs to be sold. Sitting at the back of the room was the man's old cleaning lady who had known the family and who had known the boy when he was younger. And so she puts up her hand and says, I'll give $50. $50. Down comes the anvil, and the auctioneer says the sale is over. Everybody looks at one another, but there's, there's loads of items here in the catalogue. Why? Because the man had stated that the one who took the picture of his son gets everything. I know it's only a story, and it's only an illustration, but I think it paints a very real picture for us doesn't it the one who takes the son gets everything though he was rich everything he is belongs to those in Christ Paul writing to the Romans in chapter 8 verse 17 reminds us that if we are children then we are heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. All our riches are in Christ, here and now and hereafter, to share with him in the very glory he laid aside in order that he might come to redeem us. I've got a wee bit of homework for you. See, when you go home today, I don't know whether you're having your main meal at lunchtime or you're having it at later, but when you go home today, will you do me a favour, please? Will you turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 13? Not at the moment. But will you do this when you go home and will you just read through that, that chapter um, and those words to, to impress upon us the riches that are ours in Christ. 
Well, we've got a couple of minutes because we didn't really have a proper children's address. Let's listen. Spiritual blessings in Christ. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as, those he, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Hallelujah. All that you have in Christ, chosen before the foundation of the world, every spiritual blessing that you will need is yours. Adopted through Christ, redeemed by the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. Making known the fullness of his word and his plan for us. That wonderful inheritance that awaits us, that can never, moths and, and can't come in and destroy it, thieves can't steal it. And of course, the earnest of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of all that is yet to come in Christ. So he says to them, again, within the context of giving, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, it's going to be wonderful when we get to heaven, isn't it? When we get to glory. I think as you get a bit older, you start to think about it a bit more. So I'm looking at my friend here because he is slightly younger than me, but only slightly. He may look a lot more younger than me, but I've had a harder life. But I think as you get that bit older, you probably do begin to think a bit more about glory. It's a bit nearer, let's be honest. And when we get to glory and see him in all his glory, what a day that will be. And we will be there only because he became poor on that cross that in him we might be made new. We might be born again. And then that he might continue to sanctify us, preparing us for glory. Preparing us for glory. Will you do that? Will you go back and read? I read it rather quickly. Read Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. 
So as we have come to the end of our Advent season, and as we approach the end of another calendar year, this is the last time you will meet in 2021. Some of us might say hallelujah to that fact, because it's been a real challenge in many, many ways, hasn't it? For some of us, it's not been, as the Queen once said, a year in which she would look back upon with undiluted joy. But as we come to the end of the Advent season, as we come to the end of another calendar year, there is a twofold application of the text. First of all, we need gladly to own its truth and to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Saviour, thankful in our hearts for his sacrificial saving work on our behalf. It was because they knew Christ that he could appeal to them on the mercies of Christ, on the grace of Christ. And secondly, in all matters relating to giving and gifts, we ought to imitate him and his self-giving. Here then is love, self-giving love, sacrificial love, redeeming love, forgiving love, love in all its fullness for you and for me. Do we rejoice in our hearts this morning that Christ came? Do we say, as we were thinking earlier, thank you enough for all that he has done, because he has done what you and I could never do. And then in a spirit of thankfulness, will we go into this new year prepared to give everything? Because that basically is what he calls for. That is basically what he calls for. We are called to live for him in the entirety of our lives. Now that will mean different things for each of us. So I'm not going to suggest what you should or shouldn't do. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit speak to you about that and point you to Jesus and move your heart. Perhaps there's somebody here this morning who first of all needs to know Jesus. Perhaps there's somebody out there wherever you happen to be and you've joined us this morning and you're very welcome. Perhaps you need to know this grace first and foremost. And you can just now. Do you remember the publican who went up with the Pharisee and the Pharisee who prayed, oh, I thank you, God, I'm not like everybody else. I'm this, 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 and this. And the poor publican put his head down and beat upon his breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Who went home justified? Did Jesus say the publican? It's as simple as that. If the Holy Spirit has so moved you. And for those who do know Christ, for those of us who do know Christ and who rejoiced in Christ our Saviour, we are called to give everything. Time, talents and treasure in his service. How can we give less? How can we give less? Yes, you need money to buy food. I'm not suggesting you don't do that. That's not what I'm talking about. But a rightful response, holding nothing back, for him who gave everything for us. Jesus is just wonderful, isn't he? Say amen. amen. I can get away with that here.
It's not a gimmick. It's meant in our hearts. Christ is a wonderful, wonderful saviour. Remember where he came from. Remember what he gave. Remember in him how blessed you are. And when you go out those doors, go with a renewed sense, a renewed sense of purpose in Christ and for Christ in the days to come. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge that it's brought to all of our hearts. It is in many ways so easy for those of us who've lived quite a number of years now. We've heard this story. We were taught it in our children's Bibles. We were taught it in the Sunday school classes. We, we got dressed up in the towels and, the, the, uh, 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 and the, the dressing gowns to take part in the nativity scenes. And then we came under the instruction of your word as adults. And the Holy Spirit worked that wonderful miracle of new life and new birth. And we fled to Christ as our only refuge. And we've continued to remember the story year after year after year after year. May it never become just something we do. But may it really resonate in our hearts not only for our salvation, but for our good, for the honouring of him, and for the salvation of many, we pray. Amen. We're going to conclude by singing uh, another Christmas carol. If you're using the hymn book, it's 211, although the words will appear on the screen. Hark, the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Go now rejoicing in that Christ has come and that he has come for us and our salvation. So go now to love and serve the Lord and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit be with you all this day and until Jesus comes or calls. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.